0: It's good to see everyone out again this evening. I've got to hand it to y'all. Uh, I've, I've, I feel encouraged so far as we've been able to sing uh, hymns and spiritual songs to God. Uh, I think it's been uh, an exceptional night because, especially after that first hymn, right as soon as we were done with the song, I looked over and Hawk started giggling. Uh, so uh, I think it was a, a job well done. And so I just wanted to extend that to you all. Um, <clears throat> Again, if you want to go ahead and turn to Judges chapter 2, I want to just look at, I guess, maybe a part two to last, uh, not last week, our gospel meeting was last week, but the week before, we looked at um, one lesson in the book of Judges, and we we really focused on that notion of how during this time, Israel, they were doing everything, uh, every man was doing what was right in his own eyes. And we talked about the folly of that and we really talked about the depravity that that leads to um, and even among God's people uh, and how devastating that is. And, and so with that set up as a foundation, understanding that that is a conclusion that we cannot go to, uh, that is absolutely sinful, I want to look at this week how you get to that point. That's kind of the, the conclusion of the matter after God's people had gone astray. But I want to look at specifically how is it that they went astray. In Judges chapter 2 in verse 10, it says that uh, all the, that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. I think this is, <clears throat> I, mean, I don't think, I know, this is the main problem. Uh, when you think about all of the sinfulness, when you think about the apostasy over and over and over again throughout the book of Judges, this is the key. There was a generation that arose that did not know God. And really, I think that uh, that is the, the as, as you see in Judges chapter 2, and, and we'll read a little bit more in just a moment, that is the uh, ultimate foundation for how you get to uh, the doing everything that is right in your own eyes, and and really just forgetting about God. And so, what I want to do tonight is just look at two points, and and just think about how they got to this point in just a generation. That's what's that's what one of the things that's so striking about this verse is that it's not like you're saying, well, several generations later, um, you know, all of a sudden people started being idolatrous. All of a sudden people randomly start. It, it doesn't take generations and generations. All it is is there's a faithful generation that was that was living and they did well but then after them you have a generation that does not know God and begins down a, a path that leads to uh, utter sinfulness as you look at the book of Judges as we did last week. And so I just want to look at how does this happen even within just such a short span of time. Um, And again, two points, the first of which being uh, just looking at their disobedience. Over and over again, clearly, uh, Israel disobeys God. They just don't listen to God. But I want to look at what that disobedience looks like. Again, I've said this before, but I don't think disobedience always shows itself in just full-sale rebellion. I think often it shows itself in in maybe uh, lesser extreme situations, first of which being partial obedience. And I think that's what you see at the very beginning of Judges. In Judges chapter 2 in verse 1 now, uh, this is after it explains that Joshua, as he led the people, they, they did well, uh, but even towards the end of chapter 1, God told them to... to Force all of the Canaanites out. He tells them to eradicate uh, the land of of the idolatry and of the people. But they start to fail. Uh, And then in Judges chapter 2 and verse 1 it says, Now the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Baquam. And he said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed me. What is this that you have done? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become as thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. Now, it's the consequence of of them not fulfilling their end of of, uh, the condition that he had given them. In verse 4, when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. So they named that place Bakum, and there they sacrificed the Lord. Now, Again, you, throughout the book of Joshua, what you find is is a lot of victory. I mean, you do see some failure, you do see some sinfulness. Uh, speaking of Achan, um, and and even towards um, uh, just just kind of sprinkled throughout Joshua. But overall, what you have is faithfulness from the people of Israel, from God's people. Um, but even then. You get to the end of Joshua, and as we already said, in, Joshua, in Judges chapter 1, you see that there are really just, maybe in our eyes, minor failures. But they turn out to be great in consequence. Um, because they did not fully obey the Lord in driving the people out, what happens? Well, uh, the consequences that he said he would bring should they disobey, but I just I, I think it's important to note the fact that their partial obedience, though they did obey in a lot of aspects, they didn't do it at all. God shows that is disobedience. Um, and sometimes I think it's easy to look at uh, some situations where someone has done a lot of what God has said, but mm, they, they didn't really they honestly didn't really care about this last part or or a couple parts that that has been specified throughout his revelation. And sometimes it's easy just uh, let's just kind of sweep that under the rug just because I, I mean he he's 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 done he's done a lot. Well, there's one thing to be said about someone who's trying. But in this case, and a lot of times when when people are, uh, and a lot of times when people don't fulfill the conditions that God has given them, it's simply because they choose not to. And it's that choice that is the disobedience. They choose to do everything. Up to the point, basically, of what they want to do. Especially with the tribe of Dan, I think you see this come full circle. At the very beginning of the book, you see that Dan does not take the, the land that was apportioned to them. And because of that, they're still wandering at the end of Judges. And, and, it's, and you get that uh, within the story of, of Micah and, and the Levite. And how, because they were still wandering, trying to find a place to settle... Uh, you have all of this chaos and all of this sinfulness again because they were doing right in their own eyes. It was because they did right in their own eyes that they're even in that situation. They could have taken the land. They could have just obeyed God and trusted in Him as He s- promised them that He would deliver them into the land and deliver them from the people that they were to fight against. In Joshua chapter 23, just a page over... Joshua 23, as he quotes from this in Judges, beginning in verse 5, it says, The Lord your God, he will thrust them out from before you and drive them from before you, and you will possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Be very firm, then, to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, so that you may not turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left, so that you will not associate with these nations, these which remain among you, or mention the name of their gods, or make anyone swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. In verse 8, but you are to cling to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. For the Lord has, stri- has driven out great and strong nations from before you. And as for you, no man has stood before you to this day. One of your men puts to flight a thousand. For the Lord your God is he who fights for you, just as he promised you. So take diligent heed to yourselves to love the Lord your God. For if you ever go back and cling to the rest of these nations, these which remain among you, and intermarry with them so that you associate with them and they with you, Know with certainty that the Lord your God will not continue to drive these nations out from before you, but they will be a snare and a trap to you and a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good land which the Lord your God has given you. And so again, at the very end of this very faithful generation, you have these words just repeated. It's not like Joshua is saying, uh, giving this warning for the very first time. They've had many, many years to look at this and to think about this because it was in the law. He even mentions that at the very beginning of what we just read. And so, even with all of that, they decide that they they don't want to go fully and, and fully obey the Lord's commands. And so, because of that disobedience... That's what begins that cycle, that begins that cycle, I'd say, of of apostasy and drifting closer and closer to doing what is right in their own eyes. Well, not only that, but another display of disobedience, and we've already kind of hinted at it, is the fact that they just just choose what's best for them instead of listening to what God says is best for them. Uh, In Judges chapter 1 and verse 28, it kind of says this a few times towards the end of uh, chapter 1 but specifically in verse 28 as it talks about how Manasseh did not take possession of Bethshean and its villages or Tanakh and its villages or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages or the inhabitants of Iblium and its villages or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages so the Canaanites persisted in living in that land. That is a lot that they chose not to do. In verse 28, it came about when Israel became strong that they put the Canaanites to forced labor but they did not drive them out completely. It's victory, right? Because they they have put the Canaanites under forced labor. They have they have truly put them under their under their uh, not boot but sandals. They truly have authority over these people. So that's victory. That's what's needed. That's that's what's appropriate, right? Well, that's not what God has said. What's appropriate was to do was to drive them out com- completely. What was appropriate and right to do was to drive all of the idolatry, eradicate the idolatry from the land. But they decide that they know better. And it's because they, it's because they uh, decide that, uh, and it could have been for, for many reasons, but I think for one thing that they could have said was, this is just better. We have slaves now. But that's not what God said would, was victory. Now, sometimes I think people tend to look at circumstances that they're in and, and say, oh, this is victory. And, and we need to kind of point back to the scriptures, point back to God's revelation and say, what God says here is its defeat. <laughs> oh, well, you know what? I've, I've always struggled with, with pornography my entire life. But you know what? Now I'm just down to, to viewing it once per week. It's the, look at the victory God has brought me. It's like, I don't. I don't know if you want to bring God into that because that's still pretty messy you know I've been an alcoholic a raging alcoholic for 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 just years and years and years but you know what I now I just I'm, I'm a one bottle a day kind of man again that's not something you want to bring God into because he says the victory is liberty and you know what liberty means it means free of the chains. it means the bondage is completely broken and, 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 that's, and that's what's interesting, is maybe they would see this as victory, and yet they are inviting the chains right back onto themselves. And so it's dangerous uh, to disobey in, in that kind of a way. Well, finally with this, they forsake... Every warning that God had given them about, especially, the worldly association. In verse 3 of chapter 2, again, he just brings in the notion uh, as he talks about that how he will drive them out before you, but they will become as thorns in your sides and their gods will be a snare to you. Not only does he talk about the idolatry, but he also talks about the idolatrous, the people who serve those false gods. And, and so, there's, there's a couple different aspects that they need to be careful of. A few different things that they need to be looking out for as, as they enter the land. But in both respects, they just they just don't fully obey. They, don't, uh, they decide to do otherwise. And for uh, probably several different uh, silly reasons. But if you want to turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. The reason I like to go back... To, to the law, is because I like to show over and over again that it's not like God is bringing something up out of the blue. It's just saying something for the first time to where, the, to where His people can be like, Oh, what? I never even thought about that. How are we supposed to know? No, no, you knew. It's kind of like what Paul does. as he's, he, he's quoting from the Old Testament, from the prophets, from the law, over and over again in Romans chapter 10. And he's just bringing all this up, I think to be just very sarcastic. Well, how could we have known all of this was supposed to happen? How could we know that, the, that this Messiah would look like this? Who came and told us? Oh, uh, well, I mean, let's look at Isaiah. What did he say? Let's look at the law of Moses. What did Moses say? And, and, it's, and, and so I, I think it's important to look at how many times the people uh, could just go back and see through God's promises and through his, his uh, revelation, they could have foreseen the, these issues. But in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 4 beginning, it says, For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and He will quickly destroy you. But thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars, and smash their sacred pillars, and hew down their ashram, and burn their graven images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And I meant to read verse 3 there as well, but we've already mentioned it. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. And then he goes on in verses 4 through 6. And so, again, it's, it's not just a matter of don't, don't fall down and worship these false idols. Don't associate yourselves with those who would fall down before the, 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 the dead wooden stone. But what they're doing was inviting worldliness in. And what you find from the very beginning is that is so devastating. And it almost always, if not always leads to destruction, leads to leads to self-destruction. And what does Paul say in Romans chapter 13 and verse 14? But give no provision to, for the flesh. Give no p- provision. That doesn't mean, well, I mean, I, I know that this is wrong, but I, I mean, I, I do a pretty good job of, of staying strong. I'm a pretty resilient guy, so you know, I, I don't have to shut it out completely. Is that, is that giving no provision to the flesh? No, giving no provision to the flesh means... You don't look at it, you don't associate with it, you don't let it creep in. You don't invite it in. You put up a wall and you keep it out. But they decided that they didn't want to do that. They invited that worldliness in when God warned against it time and time again. Well, I would. after all this, I would just say, one of the main applications, we need to understand, this. all of this, none of these change just because we are... In a more modern culture. Just because, well, well, this is we're in a modern society now, so we're above all of that. Or maybe they just didn't understand what they were doing fully, so we can actually do some of the same things, but we're just better equipped to handle it. I, where in the world do you find that? You know, scratch that. Where in the Bible do you find that? Where in God's Word do you find that? Because I've never seen anything that God says to indicate that just be just because we are living in 2023 at this point that does not mean that we can't still fall to the same temptations that we ourselves won't fall to the temptation of partial obedience you see it all the time of or maybe of inviting worldliness in oh goodness how many times have you seen a, a loved one a relative do something like that and yet you try to Reach out to them and say, I think you're hurting yourself. I think you really need to be careful here just to get a door in your face. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and verse 14, look at the language. Look at what the, the, the quotation that Paul brings in as he starts talking about the intermingling of, of that, which is, that which is righteous and that which is not. Verse 14 of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. In verse 1 of chapter 7, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit and perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now, (laughs) what is he quoting? As he's talking to to Christians, not, not just Jews, but Christians. He's quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting the law. He's quoting what God had said even before um, uh, even before they ever came into existence, way before. And yet he's using this to say it, it's still the same today. Just because he's using uh, passages from generations before does not mean that it applies to them very strongly. And just because he uses it in the first century does not mean it doesn't apply in the, with the same level of, of seriousness and impact in the 21st century. And and I think we need to be careful of a kind of arrogance that suggests, well, we're above all of that. I don't think we are. We haven't evolved to a point of of perfection. Um, Rather, we are striving to reflect the the perfection, the holiness of God. And so we need to to take all of these into account and make sure that we don't just brush them off by saying, uh, I think we're better than that. Because we—that that is when we open the door even wider to temptation. Well, secondly, I want to learn some of the lessons. I want to make some application from what I think Israel failed at. I think that ultimately uh, what leads to this kind of a mindset, what leads to a generation not knowing God, is just very, uh, just specifically, insufficient teaching. And so I want to make some points of application as we look at, at how they could have failed what they could have done differently maybe to try and bring a bolster up uh, the next generation the younger generation to try and be more faithful not just not just maybe as faithful as as them but more so and trying to bring them up even higher and so just ask the question how do we teach to prepare the next generation properly as, as we look at their example well first of all when you look at the period of the Judges, they may have inherited good practices. And they may have inherited even a good society, a good culture. Because they had, they're had they finally in the promised land. And they didn't have to build all these things that they, that they were just able to inhabit and take for themselves. And so they, they inherited a lot of really good things. But they were not taught the faith. They didn't inherit the faith of the previous generation. And again, I just wonder how... Could could that happen? In Deuteronomy, again, in chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. And you may put a bookmark here because we'll come back to this a a few times. But Deuteronomy chapter 4. Beginning in verse 9. Deuteronomy 4 and verse 9. It says... Only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life but make them known to your sons and your grandsons. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb when the Lord said to me, Assemble the people to me that I might let them hear my word so that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth and that they may teach their children. This isn't the only uh, memory that he brings up for the people of Israel. Uh, You skip over to uh, chapter 6, just a page over in Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 20. Deuteronomy 6 and verse 20, he says, When your son asks you in time to come, saying, What do the testimonies and statutes and the judgments mean which the Lord our God commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us from Egypt with a mighty hand. Moreover, the Lord showed great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. He brought us out from there in order to bring us in, to give us the land which we had sworn to our fathers, which he had sworn to our fathers. So the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, and for our survival as it is today. It will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all this commandment before the Lord our God, just as he commanded us." I can't imagine that they, that, that, that they went, uh, tried to teach the, the next generation with this level of, of fervor, with this level of, of consideration like we were talking about this morning. But I think this is one thing that we must uh, take, into, take into account in our daily lives it, uh, if we are, are trying to train up children in the way that they should go. Even if we aren't parents yet, but we are just striving to help the next generation. We need to try and, and focus on the energy, the effort that it takes to teach. And we need to make sure that we're um, careful about how we teach it. There were many memorials that they could look at. We'll look at another one in just a moment of how they crossed the Jordan. Can, can you imagine how that you could tell that story? You could tell it in such a way that expresses gratitude excitement or you could tell it in such a way that expresses it happened it was there it was cool and what what is what is what is the child going to learn from that um and we'll get more into that in just a moment but but to teach in this way it, it's going to take time it's going to take sacrificial time um uh, my father-in-law he he i think he does this really well he's a uh, uh, you know, Paige has three brothers, and you know there'd be work around the house. There'd be things, chores that needed to get done, and he would, uh, especially when the boys never didn't know what to do. This is the first time that they were doing something. Especially Paige's youngest brother, he's a bit of a mechanic. A bit, uh, well, he's an engineer now, but um, he would try to work on a car that he had never worked on before, or, or try to replace a part that he never replaced before. And and Brad, as he would just kind of try to explain these things to him. You know, it would take hours at times, and you just think, you know, Brad, you you know exactly what to do. You know that this piece goes here, and you know exactly why that's supposed to happen, because he's an engineer as well. (laughs) And so it's not like there's a lack of knowledge there, but what is he trying to teach? He's he's trying to, to teach him how to fix the problem. He's trying to give him this knowledge, and that knowledge does not come just by saying, okay, this, 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 and this is how we do it. This is just what we've always done. No, he's, he's taking the time to show him. But I think, and I just can't imagine how easy it would be. Uh, and we're just going to see as, as Hawk gets older. But I can't imagine how easy it will be whenever there's something that needs to get done. And maybe I task it to him. And he's just doing it so slowly and so inefficiently. And I just, I just take over and I get it done. And it's like, you see how you're supposed to do it? Uh, it makes me think about the patience God must have <laughs> with us at times. The patience that we need when we are trying to teach one another. Because we're not all going to have the same experiences or even the same knowledge. And what it's going to take is, is a sacrifice of time. Uh, and so we need to, again, we need to keep that in, in our minds uh, moving forward as we try to, to teach the next generation. Teach each other and teach our children. That it will take time. And And just because we're losing time, that doesn't mean that we're wasting it. Rather, you're investing a good bit. Well, not only that, but our teaching needs to be persistent as well. One of the main issues I think you find is that they did not impress the law of God enough uh, into uh, the, the generations. In Deuteronomy 6, we read this earlier this morning, but in Deuteronomy 6, beginning in verse 4 this time, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, once again, just like we looked at this morning, does that sound like it's something that we just, on Sundays and Wednesdays, that's when we'll talk about this book. But other than that, you're not going to hear anything else about it in this house. Is that what that sounds like? No. But if you're going to impress something on your heart, again, as we said this morning, it is a constant reevaluation. It's a constant consideration. And it's a constant trying to bring our minds back to the mind of God. Deuteronomy chapter 11, beginning in verse 18. Deuteronomy 11, in verse 18, beginning... He says, You shall therefore impress these words of mine on your heart and on your soul and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall teach them to your sons, talking of them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, so that your days and the days of your sons may be multiplied on the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give them, as long as the heavens remain above the earth. For if you are careful to keep all this commandment which I am commanding you to do, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways and hold fast to Him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations from before you, and you will dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Over and over again, God emphasizes the need to impress these words on the chil- on your children on the next generation on one another when god repeats himself especially as much as he does in this case what that always means is we need to take more time to consider that not less time when god repeats himself it's for a reason and it tends to be because it's something that we that we tend to struggle with and so we need to focus more on the written word we need to have we need to try and teach the faith just like we talked about just a moment ago and, and try to get them to not only inherit good habits but a good uh, but inherit a, a right faith and a relationship with God but that doesn't come without the word that has been written that has been spoken by him well I would also say that teaching must be Urgent, And what I mean by that is it should start as early as possible. You remember what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, he writes about all of these things that happen under the sun. He writes about all of these things that really you lose out on when you try to attain. And after he's examined everything under the sun, he says in verse 1 of chapter 12, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near, when you will say, I have no delight in them. The the conclusion is, remember your creator. And particularly, as soon as humanly possible. Now, some people may look at that and think, well, I'm not so young. Maybe you're someone who's not a child anymore, and yet you're not a Christian. One thing I think we see throughout the Bible is, not, is it's not just talking about those who are children. It, it's, a, it's establishing the principle, you need to begin this as soon as possible. And so whether you're a child who's very young or you're 85 years old and still not a Christian, as soon as possible. Uh, you kind of see the urgency of the gospel there. You see the, the, something similar with, with Timothy. Paul talks about Timothy's faith in, in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5. He says, you know, you, you, this is a faith that, that uh, you've had since you were young and that you uh, really were kind of taught from your, your grandmother Eunice. But then you look over in chapter 3, the same letter, Chapter 3 and verse 14, and he says, you, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. I think a lot of times people think that, well, I mean, they're just kids. I mean, a teenager just, they they can't have that same level of conviction. Now, granted, hopefully, you're not going to have a teenager that has the same level of conviction as an 85-year-old who's been a Christian for years and years and years, because hopefully they have taken time to to, uh, (laughs) mature in their devotion to God. That that and, and get that kind of experience in their faith that only comes with that amount of time in in devotion. But we want to make sure that we don't think that just because they're not going to have that same level of conviction maybe, maybe they're not going to be maybe, maybe they won't be as as zealous. This does they are still very capable. inheriting that faith they're still very capable of obeying the gospel especially as you look at Timothy and Paul speaking of how he learned them even from a young age he was convinced of these things that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus from childhood that faith was being cultivated and it was being established Uh, and and um I, uh, very quickly in Psalm 78, I want to I read just a few verses here in Psalm 78 because I thought this was very interesting while I was looking at this. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord. And his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel. Which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children. That the generation to come might know even the children yet to be born. That they may arise and tell them to their children. That they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God. But keep his commandments and not be like their fathers. A stubborn and rebellious generation. A generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. You know, sometimes people worry about what, what maybe our, our, our kids will see, especially when it comes to things like church discipline. That's not something that's, that's, you know, everyone's super happy about. It shouldn't be. It's not something that people are just so excited to get, to get done. I mean, it's something that we dread, and for good reason, because it's never a good thing. It's a sorrowful thing. And sometimes, whether it's a visitor or it's young children, we're thinking, what, what are they going to see here? What are they going to take from this? Well, what I think they're going to take from this is exactly what God has said they should take from it. What we all are supposed to take from it, that we all are learning from that when we obey God, especially as a collective effort. When you have a group of people, a group of God's people that say we are going to follow this even when it hurts, that does so much more, uh, uh, that, that has so much more benefit and impact than than. Just an individual uh, many times trying to trying to uh, do something that's that's very difficult do something that is often sorrowful when you have a group of people that say we're willing to do this together that's establishing something that's teaching something maybe even without saying it directly to the child or to to the visitor even and I, and there have been times where you know there was a congregation where they had to uh, announce that they were that uh, they were having to disassociate from, from uh, a Christian who had gone astray. And there was a visitor there and, and he came up to the preacher and he said, you know, or it wasn't the preacher, It's actually a, a friend of the preacher. And he said, you know, I just, don't you think that that is going to hurt them? More? Don't you think that that is going to just make them more bitter and, and it will make things worse? And then the Christian there, they just, they went through the Bible, they went through a couple passages and they said, this is why we do it, because we're trying to follow what God says and ultimately we're trying to bring this person back. I mean, this is why. And the person just looked at, the visitor looked at him and said, I, I, I didn't see why this would, how this would benefit but I knew y'all would have a reason. And that's, I think that's a good thing. That is teaching something. Even when we may not see it, even though we may not even think that it could remotely be beneficial, it is teaching something. Especially when we're consistent in trying to do even the hard things for God. And so we need to be persistent. And we need to be uh, trying to teach as early as possible, as much as possible. And, and, And... When, when a child opens the Bible and they begin reading, I don't know if it's, necessarily, uh, if it's necessary to try and blind them or, or block them from certain places. You know, uh, maybe they, they open up the Bible one day in their daily Bible reading and they start reading the Song of Solomon. We don't have to block that from their eyes because, honestly, they're not going to understand some of the more detailed parts. But they are going to learn some things about the love that, that is expressed by God and it, that is inspired by God. And so we want, we want our, our children, we want the next generation to learn as much as possible, uh, uh, as early as possible. So with all that being said, finally, I just want to ask the question. As you think about how we are supposed to teach by example, do you think that when they talked about Israel, talked about some of these memorials like crossing over the Jordan... Or the Exodus, as we just read in Deuteronomy, how he said, you, you remember and you tell your sons about what I did, about the plagues of Egypt. Just, just the title is very, it, it is very enticing. It kind of hooks you in from the beginning. The plagues of Egypt. That's kind of why I had that title as, <laughs> for, for my sermon when we were going over the plagues of Egypt. Because it is, it's, 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 it, it hooks you instantly. And I don't think that's a bad thing. When we talk about the stories of the Bible... I I want I want as as I try to raise Hawk to to become a Christian, to love the Lord, I want him to hear me speak about these stories and speak about the text like they're my favorite bedtime stories. That that those are the men who I really really value and who I really appreciate. Brother Tom Holly, he does this all the time. He can look at a book like Ezekiel and he would talk about how he he was really trying hard to study that book. He wanted to just know more out of it. So he decided, I'm going to read it once every single week. And I'm, not going to, and I'm not going to do it to use any points from it throughout all of the year. I just want to spend this time just simply so that I can learn more about this part that God wanted us to learn from. And he said, you know, I, I did that every week and I started to pick up on a few things and I just kept doing it over and over again. And eventually I read it every week for two years and I didn't mean to. Now, you don't know Brother Holly, but I, I promise you he was sincere. He wasn't he, he he genuinely meant that he lost track. And why? Because he loves reading the words from God. And that is what I want my children to see. That's what I want my brethren to see. Um. Brother, Brother Stephen Russell, there was one time that he was, I think it was at a gospel meeting. He was preaching a sermon, and he was getting towards the end of the, the, the meeting. And um, someone came up towards the end of that week, and, and they were just talking to him about how, you know, it just seems like you, know, you just know so much about the Bible story, and, and it, you just, it's just so encouraging. And it kind of got to a more serious note, and he said, you know, I've, I've heard you preach, and when you talk about the Bible, it sounds like you love what you're talking about. And he, he just paused for a second. He said, I, I don't. I don't want to be that individual. We'll talk about maybe if you are that individual in just a moment. But I want to be, be the one who, when you, when you hear me talk about these stories and when you hear me preach on, on Sundays or when you hear me in a Bible class, I want you to hear the excitement, genuine excitement, that comes from knowing this word. Now, again, if you think about the plagues of Egypt how would you tell that story to, to children, to the little classes downstairs? Would you say it like, well, the first plague, God turned water into blood. The second plague, no, we're not going to say it like that. We're going to say, it was, it was incredible. It was supernatural. No one could have done this, but he turned the water into blood. Now, maybe you have some mimicries, but even though they, they, they pale in comparison. And then you go in, into the rest of the plagues, and you get in, in, just into more detail about that, and you could really show the level of interest to children. I wonder if, if uh, Israel struggled with that. I wonder if the generation that rose up to know not God, I wonder if one of the issues was just because in, in their parents' example... Why, why, why do we do these things? What is, why do we follow these ordinances that God has... Why has God set this up? Why are we supposed to remember this? Can you imagine what some of the parents could have said? It's just what we've always done. Let's just leave it at that. Or maybe, you know, why are, why are we partaking of the Passover? What is this supposed to symbolize? Just, just do what you're told. It's because I said so. Just be quiet and do this. What's, what's the better way of, of teaching? This is why. Because God delivered us from bondage. He broke the chains of slavery that we were in. And he delivered us not just from that, but to a a reward, a beautiful land. The promised land that we still inherit today. The ground that you're standing on, we weren't always here. Do you see how you could tell that story in a way that that shows you don't really care, you're not really grateful? Or you could tell it in a way that only makes people want to hear more. That is how I want to talk about God's word. That's how I want to talk about the story of the Bible and the gospel and Jesus. and I don't ever want to get cavalier or nonchalant about the effect that it has in my life. And when, when, it, when it gets to that point, I want to figure out a way to, to nix that and to reinvigorate that, that same level of fervor that I had at the beginning. All that being said, your, your children, the next generation... Often, they either learn your fascination for the Bible or the lack thereof. They either see the idleness of one's life or they see the active participation that the gospel affects in our life. And so, with that being said, I want to ask, which side do you think you fall on? Whether you're a parent or you're just someone who, who, maybe you're not even married, what are you showing to your brethren? What are you showing to God? Are you excited about the relationship you have with Him? And are you using that to evangelize to others? And are you using that to try and grow yourself in your relationship with Him? Or are you just merely sitting there, doing nothing? Just going to the next Wednesday or going to the next Sunday because, you know, attendance, that, that's, that's faithfulness. No. Certainly that's a part of it. But that doesn't mean you're faithful. So again, as I said a moment ago, you may be a Christian. And you may be that person that says, honestly... I want to love it, but I don't. Again, that will take time. Sometimes it takes, uh, it, it takes a lot of, of uh, you have to jump over a lot of hurdles to cultivate the kind of uh, affection and the kind of f- emotion that we're supposed to have, the zeal we're supposed to have when reading through this story. It could just be that we have spent time and time again for years just reading over these with glazed eyes. Well, we know everything that we're supposed to. Well, let's sit back down and let's look at these stories. Once again, all the stories that you know, and let's see if you know everything. Why was this written? Why, why was something like the law written? And let's just think about that. And I think a lot of it comes back to uh, what we were talking about earlier this morning, just considering things a little bit more deeply. But maybe you're not a Christian. And, and <laughs> maybe you do have a, a bit of interest you're intrigued by some of the things that you read throughout the Bible, some of the things that Jesus has to say about following Him, let me tell you, we would love nothing more than to talk more about that with you and to try and uh, answer your questions about what the gospel means, what it is supposed to mean in your life, and how you have to become a Christian, what God, the conditions that God gives us to be a part of His kingdom. If you're subject to the invitation of Christ by any means, please let your need be made known as we stand and as we sing.